Welcome to the Hapag Lloyd podcast. Whether crossing the storm, love stories on the high seas, or strange inventions, as one of the leading shipping companies in the world, we have gone through a lot of adventures and want to share those amazing stories with you here on our podcast channel. Dive with us into the fascinating world of shipping. The Hunt in the Atlantic, 1939. The Bremen, North German Lloyd's proud steamship, must be kept from enemy hands at all costs in the approaching Second World War. The captain has the ship painted in camouflage and the luxury liner embarks on a perilous voyage. The fog is lifted on this morning in the mid-Atlantic. It could be a voyage like so many before for the Bremen, with America in its wake, a clear view ahead and the ship homeward bound at full steam. But Master Adolf Ahrens orders his crew on deck. His commands are brief, precise, clear, and highly unusual. The wheelhouse and map room are to be cushioned with mattresses and sandbags to protect them from aerial attacks. He also issues order for the ship to be painted in camouflage. Around 400 men set to painting, including the musicians of the onboard orchestra. The superstructures are too obvious in white, as are the masts and funnels in yellow. The crew paints everything gray, leaving only the hull black. It is September 3, 1939, the third day of the Second World War. Just a short time ago, there had been peace, and the turbine steamship from the North German Lloyd, built in 1928 at Deschimag Shipyard Corporation in Bremen, had been a passenger ship. It is now sought after spoils of war, because the Bremen, shuttling between Bremerhaven and New York, is not just any ship. She is a luxury liner, a winner of the blue ribbon for the fastest Atlantic crossing. She made the record journey on her maiden voyage, the 286-meter-long steamship plowing from east to west at an average 27.83 knots. Her extravagant furnishings earned the Bremen the title Queen of the Seas, the upper deck is a small, luxurious boulevard in the middle of the sea. Fashion salons stand next to antique shops. There is also a swimming pool and, in addition to the large dining halls, there is a first-class restaurant. The library on board could grace any venerable university, and celebrities of the day meet in the opulent smoking saloon, including Marlene Dietrich, tenor Richard Tauber and boxer Max Schmeling. Stretching out on luxurious club seats, they discuss world affairs and, ever more frequently in recent weeks, the threat of war. It certainly cannot be said that events have found the Bremen unprepared. Even the youngest passengers are aware of the current situation. Even when departing Bremerhaven on August 22nd, there had already been a gloomy mood in the air, remembers Stuart Wilhelm Bowling, 18 years old at the time. A short while later, the ship carrying 1,700 passengers calls at two ports in the English Channel. I saw that the harbors of Southampton and Cherbourg were blocked with submarine nets, says Bowling. The master has also taken precautionary measures, securing the bridge, radio station and fire station with armed guards. There is already total radio silence out at sea. Only one British liner returns Morse communication. Sorry, we can no longer communicate with German ships. 
No more telegrams arrive, not even the weather report. Norddeutscher Lloyd's New York office staff became anxious. Why has nothing been heard from the Bremen for days? Only on August 28th, when the ship is already near the coast south of New York, does she radio her time of arrival. She moors at 6 p.m. on the same day. Even as the passengers are disembarking, the captain and the shipping company decide to have the Bremen sail back to Germany as quickly as possible without passengers. With a bit of luck, they could make the trip before war breaks out. The harbormaster, however, will not allow the ship to leave. A new law decrees that everything must be checked for weapons and ammunition. Taking their time, the customs officers spent a good two days removing wall paneling, draining the swimming pool and crawling through the engine's shaft tunnels. On the next day, new requirements are set, this time in the name of safety. The lifeboats are lowered into the water and the entire crew has to row around the harbor. We all knew that these were intentional delays to allow the ship to be later seized by the British, says Wilhelm Bowling. Nonetheless, the Bremen still manages to leave New York on August 30th without a single passenger on board. Upon departure, the crew gather on deck, make a Nazi salute and sing the German national anthem, a gesture of defiance following their in their view, harassment at the hands of the Americans. Master Ahrens steers his ship on a new course, along the Canadian coast, then further across the North Atlantic. His intention is to confuse any pursuers. War has not yet broken out, and the Bremen is only a passenger ship. But her master is already making tactical maneuvers. All of the following day, the Bremen steams through thick fog without horn or lights, hoping to locate other ships only with the help of her radio direction finder. On the morning of September 1st, a radio transmission eventually reaches the crew with the news that the German Reich has declared war on Poland. Three days later, Master Ahrens learns that Britain has also declared war on Germany. He now has the ship camouflaged. By evening, she is as gray as the sky above the sea. No lettering betrays the ship's origin and the portholes are covered. The captain has also long since prepared for the ultimate emergency, scuttling. He has mattresses and other flammable materials piled up in the dining halls, next to which stand petrol cans. At the right time, the sea valves would be opened, the main water pipes blown up and the shaft tunnels flooded. The Bremen must never fall into enemy hands. This is an unwritten law. Captured ships are valuable spoils in wartime, as they can always be used as troop transports. The master maintains course far off from Britain as another radio transmission reaches him. The Navy orders the ship to another harbor. She is no longer to return to Bremerhaven, but continue onward to Murmansk. The crew is to wait out the course of events in the city beyond the Arctic Circle, within the sovereign territory of the still neutral Soviet Union. The crew are not initially informed of this, but we quickly noticed that it was getting colder, remembers Wilhelm Bowling. The men are soon wearing two pairs of trousers and sewing themselves makeshift winter clothing from woolen blankets. We looked like mishappen goblins, says the steward. The Bremen continues at full steam, hoping to reach a safe quay. Every fog bank is a hiding place, and with every sighting of a ship she changes her course. 
There are not only enemy patrol boats off Iceland that could betray them, there are also icebergs. But the master refuses to switch on the searchlights, so great is the fear of being detected. On the morning of September 6th, the Bremen passes the North Cape and nears Soviet sovereign territory. Forty nautical miles from the Norwegian coast, she steers towards her destination as a destroyer appears on her port side. Is it the enemy? Aboard the Bremen, everyone holds their breath. Will their speed be enough to escape? There are still 30 nautical miles to Soviet waters. The destroyer is able to keep pace and is even gaining. While everyone is expecting a shot across the bows, the destroyer raises the Soviet flag. Relief. The Bremen now identifies herself. Two Soviet officers come aboard and, after long negotiations, allow them to enter Murmansk. Most of the crew return to Germany via train. Steward Wilhelm Bowling's unintended adventure is also over. In just a few days, he will be able to give his grandmother in Bremerhaven a big hug. He is conscripted into the Wehrmacht shortly afterwards. Only the officers and a few lower-ranking men remain on board the Bremen. They see that fuel is running shorter all the time because the engines are producing light and warmth day and night against the cold of the north while heavy autumn storms are shaking the ship. The fuel will last until the end of October, but what then? Ahrens and his officers work out a plan. They intend to risk breaking through to Bremerhaven within three nights and two days, if they can get hold of the necessary fuel for the 1,600 nautical miles. But they are unable to negotiate with the Russians. Weeks pass. At least the friendly Russians supply the men with winter cloth and homecoming and hold dances with champagne and caviar. Suddenly, a German tanker appears on the horizon, lying low in the water, its hold full of oil. It has been sent by Berlin to bring the Bremen home. At the beginning of December, Ahrens orders 57 of his crew that had already returned home back to Murmansk. This is the first time that the core crew realize they will soon be making the return journey. On the night of December 9th to 10th, by new moon, a Russian pilot guides the Bremen out of the harbor. Thick driving snow favors the secret mission. Like a shadow, she glides far off the Norwegian coast on a northwesterly heading. The ship rounds the North Cape and nears the British restricted zone, 150 nautical miles wide between the Shetland Islands and Norway. The clouds have parted, the sky is starry and clear, and as a searchlight flares, the German seamen in their life jackets stare at a beam of light 10 nautical miles away. Is that a British ship? The flame from a cannon might flash in the darkness at any moment and the unarmed Bremen would be helpless. But the other ship, whoever it was, does not discover them. The next day, the luxury liner sails unrecognized until just a few nautical miles from the German restricted zone. Now they have to make sure that they don't hit any of their own mines. With a zigzag course, the grey steamship nears the opening in the German mine barrier. A German torpedo boat is waiting for them at the mouth of the Weser River as a guide. The boat crew can hardly believe that they are escorting the famous Bremen, which was believed in Germany to be missing without trace. Having only just entered the Weser, Master Ahrens drops anchor. One final night on board and the Bremen will call the next morning. 
The press has been instructed to make a big thing out of the triumph. The return of the Bremen is great propaganda. When the crew finally step onto Bremen's Columbus Kaye Quay, it is greeted by the Navy in rank and file. Bearing a grudge makes for a dismal end. In March 1941, a young sailor named Gustav Schmidt starts a fire on board, apparently in revenge against a superior. The fire ruins the passenger ship. In times of peace, this would have been an insurance issue, but this is war and the Bremen is under the control of the Navy. The perpetrator is sentenced to death and executed. After the war, the remains of the double hull are towed upstream along the Weser and set on a sandbank at Blexen. Parts of the skeleton of the once proud luxury liner can still be seen at low tide.